0: Hello and
1: welcome to this program that is uh, convened by the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the Hubert H. Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota. I'm Larry Jacobs, I'm a professor at the University of Minnesota at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. I wanna start by uh, welcoming everybody. Thank you for joining us. Uh, And I also wanna welcome you to the conversation. If you look at the bottom of your screen, you'll see that there is a button, which we've helpfully circled, called Q&A. This is the way in which you can pose questions. And we try to get to as many as possible as we will uh, up during this afternoon. So please, give us your questions. We have a bias for hard-hitting questions, so give us some of those. I want to say a few words about our upcoming programs. Uh, The center is pioneering in the area of election administration. This is nonpartisan. It's geared to training uh, professional election officials. Um, The program is up and running strong. We're placing a lot of people in good jobs. And our next program is August 13th. That's this Thursday at noon central time. And it's on election security with some terrific people from around the country. Please join us for that. Uh, As you look to September, we've got another blockbuster month. Uh, Tom Hamburger from the Washington Post will be talking with us about money and politics uh, with a particular eye on Attorney General Barr and the upcoming election. Uh, Mark Lopez from the Pew Research Center will be joining us to talk about Latino voting in 2020. Um, Al Franken will be joining us to give us his view about the upcoming election, and then women elections with Jennifer Lawless from the University of Virginia. We've had many programs, uh, a lot of them on Zoom uh, this year, obviously after March, Uh, and you can view those programs. They're available online. Topics have been quite wide ranging, uh, as have the moderators, Uh, election administration, Black Lives Matter, uh, election um, reforms, uh, we've also looked at healthcare, including issues related to structural racism in health and healthcare in America. Um, so, a lot there. Please come and check out our programs. Very excited about uh, today's program. It's the start of what we hope will become an ongoing uh, set of programs uh, with two people that uh, we trust and, and have worked with uh, for some time. Uh, Justin Bowen was campaign manager for Amy Klobuchar's presidential campaign. Uh, Vin Weber, who's had a long time relationship with the Humphrey School uh, and has collaborated with us on many occasions. He's a partner at the Berkeley Firm in Washington. He's a former member of Congress uh, from uh, Minnesota. Um, And I wanna just mention that we do have an invitation out to Ronan McDaniel, who is the chair of the Republican National Committee, and that's under active consideration Without further ado, I'm gonna turn things over to our moderators, Justin Bowen and Vin Weber.
0: Thank you, Larry, and thank you to the Humphrey School for hosting this conversation. Uh, We're thrilled uh, to welcome Tom Perez uh, to to the conversation today. Tom is the chair of the Democratic National Committee, a position that he's held since 2017. Uh, During his tenure, he oversaw the Democratic takeover of the US House in 2018 where they netted 41 seats, including uh, two new members of Congress from Minnesota, Dean Phillips and Angie Craig, great additions to the House. Uh, Previously, Tom served as uh, President Obama's Secretary of Labor, uh, and before being sworn in, he had to overcome a a four-month Republican filibuster uh, and was finally confirmed without a single Republican vote, which uh, for a DNC chairman is a uh, badge of honor. Uh, So congratulations uh, to that, uh, Mr. Chairman. Well, uh, at Labor, Tom uh, devoted much of his time to expanding workers' rights, empowering uh, labor unions and increasing wages and benefits for workers. Prior to his service as Labor Secretary, uh, he was the Assistant Attorney General uh, in the Civil Rights Division, working under uh, Attorney General Holder. During that tenure, Tom led cases against uh, student discrimination, police discrimination, uh, and voting rights laws, uh, voter ID laws. Uh, Tom is uh, the son of immigrants. Tom is the son of immigrants from the Dominican Republic. He's born in Buffalo. Uh, graduated from Brown. Got his law degree from Harvard and went on to get a master's uh, in public policy from the John F. Kennedy School. Uh, Mr. Chairman, we're thrilled to have you tonight. Thank you for joining us.
2: Great to be with you. I used to work at the uh, Department of Health and Human Services under. Uh, President uh, Clinton, and I would walk into work every day past the Humphrey building, into the Humphrey building, where right on that door it said, uh, the moral test of our strength as a nation is how we treat those in the dawn of life, our children, how we treat those in the twilight of life, the elderly, and how we treat those in the shadows of life. And so I'm, I will always remember those uh, very important words of Hubert Humphrey, after which your great school
0: is named. Well, and there's probably no more fitting time for those words to, uh, to be uh, remembered because of what we're going through today as a country and, and, and the, the challenges that we've got uh, coming up. And, and what we want to talk about today is who's going to be the person leading, uh, uh, leading the recovery uh, come next year. And, and with 85 days before the election, um, according to 538 polling averages, Vice President Biden leads President Trump by more than eight points nationally. He's ahead in battleground states like Minnesota, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Florida, even some, uh, some reach states probably uh, a year ago we wouldn't have thought we'd, we'd be tied or ahead in, in Ohio and Texas. So you must be feeling pretty good heading into uh, your convention uh, next week. Um, but we saw what could happen four years ago, uh, and there's still a long ways to go before uh, election day. How do Democrats – Uh, keep up the momentum here and and as we head into the convention.
2: We keep our momentum up by making sure that we understand that uh, the only poll that counts is November the 3rd. We got 85 days till the weekend. That's what I say every single day to our team. 85 days until the most important election of our lifetime and we can't squander a moment. Uh, I'm heartened by the polling but I tell my team with regularity don't get on the polar coaster uh, don't let it allow you to become uh, complacent. Uh, and what I love about the merger with the Biden campaign and what I love about all the uh, surrogates who are helping us, including uh, Senator Klobuchar and so many others, is that everybody is hungry. Everybody understands that we need to go pedal to the metal and everyone understands that uh, we there's complacency has no place in the Biden campaign. We are out to earn every vote. And we are working for every vote. What I'm happy about, uh, Justin, is our our battlefield uh, is expanding. Uh, And that's because Joe Biden's reach cuts across our hardcore Democrats, uh, independents, uh, what I call party of Lincoln Republicans. The party of Lincoln is dead. It's been replaced by a very, very extreme party. And I can't tell you the number of Republicans uh, who are for Joe Biden because, and and this is a segue to the convention point, because they understand that we need a president who can unite us. We need a president with empathy and compassion. Uh, Someone who uh, brings us together, doesn't tear us apart. Somebody who's fundamentally competent. Um, I think elections come down to um, who do you trust to keep your promises? Whose moral compass is your moral compass as a voter? And and I think the 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 convention it's going to be unlike any convention we've ever seen. That's the reality of the pandemic. But you know what? Uh, I said to the team months ago because we've been planning for this. You know, un- unlike the Republicans who kept saying full steam ahead until it wasn't. You know, we 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 moved the convention back five six weeks a while ago. Then we told our delegates not to show up. We we understood that we had to follow the science and listen to the experts, and. What we also did was tell our production team, we need to plan for every eventuality. And and I think people are going to be really excited about what they see. I mean, we're really going to be talking about, um, you're going to see a lot of everyday Americans who've done extraordinary things um, during this pandemic, uh, this healthcare pandemic, the economic pandemic, the civil rights pandemic. We're going to lift up ordinary Americans doing extraordinary things. We're going to lift up the importance of leadership and competence and science. Uh, We're gonna make sure that we're talking about the unfinished business. It's gonna be abundantly clear to everybody watching that our goal is not to recreate where we were in 2016. Our goal is to move forward in a bold, inclusive, exciting, aggressive way to tackle the challenges of 2020 and beyond. And those challenges are frankly, uh, existential, Justin. And, and, and I think every so often in life, a person meets the moment. And uh, I think Joe Biden is a perfect example of that because we, the number of people who tell me, I want decency to be returned to the White House. I want someone who has the competence to get things done, who is the commander in chief, not the tweeter in chief. And, and I think people are going to see Joe Biden. They're going to see our party. They're going to see our values uh, next week. They're going to see it in really unique, exciting, uh, fun ways. It's going to be anchored in Wisconsin, but it's going to be a, a convention across America.
3: Uh, Mr. Chairman, thank you very much for joining us today. It's a uh, to be with uh, you. I know what a busy time it is for you with the convention coming up, probably even more so because it's going to be an unconventional convention, and we appreciate you giving us uh, the time that you have today. Let me, let me just a- ask a, a, question, a question about, I mean, to be candid, uh, I've worked a little bit with Senator Biden. I have great respect for him, but it looks to me, looking at the polls, as if he's almost a non-factor in this election. There's very little enthusiasm for him, a lot of support, very little enthusiasm. Isn't this election really all about Trump, yes or no? And isn't that really where your convention probably has to go, is to discrediting Trump even further?
2: Well, I, uh, it's good to see you again, Congressman. Uh, I would respectfully and uh, energetically disagree with your premise, okay. and I would look at the data. I mean, look, if if we weren't in the middle of a pandemic, what we would be talking about is the lights out turnout that we've seen uh, starting in 2017, 18, 19 and going into these primaries. New Hampshire had a uh, record turnout, uh, outdid 08. Joe Biden outperformed Barack Obama in South Carolina. It, it, Joe Biden in 2020, if, I, if you and I had had a cup of coffee January of this year and I said more people are going to turn out in South Carolina the last day of February for the South Carolina primary than turned out in 2008 for Joe Biden you would, you probably would have been wondering if I had a little Kahlua in my coffee. And uh, that's what happened. And then three days later on Super Tuesday, the same thing. I think there's tremendous energy and there's a tremendous, um, uh, there's a a tremendous interest in regaining our democracy. And, and, and Congressman, what I, what I said before about just to Justin is what I would reiterate. Sometimes in life, a person meets the moment. Um, This president Uh, held a press conference over the weekend at his golf course to talk about executive action. That, I mean, every ethics lawyer across America ought to be wondering, like, what are you doing? He's talking about holding, you know, his uh, acceptance speech, you know, from the White House. I mean, people are dying right now. People are suffering like never before. And they want leadership that feels their pain. And, and that's where Joe Biden meets the moment. He has a track record of accomplishment. He has a track record of bringing people together. And that moment is now. And, and if you look at our platform, it's a really bold vision for moving America forward uh, economically uh, in our foreign policy, in every aspect of opportunity. and so. I'm very excited about uh, the. Um, I'm very excited about Joe Biden. We're going to make more history this week with uh, the historic announcement of a running mate, and um, you know people know our democracy is on fire. Republicans, Democrats, and Independents, the Lincoln Project, Democrats, others—they know that this president is unfit to serve. And you see Joe Biden, and you see a person of impeccable impeccable um, integrity.
3: You mentioned the platform, if I can just follow up quickly and then Justin, I'll go back to you. The platform is an opportunity though for Republicans because as you've seen, one of the main points the Republicans are trying to make is the Democratic Party, maybe not so much as Biden himself, have moved dramatically to the left from the Obama years. What are we gonna see in the platform? How far are you gonna go on the Green New Deal? How far are you gonna go on tax increases? How far are you gonna go on Bernie Sanders call? to abolish shareholder capitalism. Are we going to see some, is there there going to be moderation in that platform or are you going to boldly give the Republicans a lot of ammunition?
2: Our platform committee has already voted out the platform and uh, it will be adopted overwhelmingly uh, at the convention next week. We we have electronic voting. So, you know, people have already uh, voted. I already voted. Uh, Our platform has a radical concept Every person in this country ought to have access to quality, affordable health care. I used to work on the Kaiser Commission with a guy named Dave Durenberger. Dave Durenberger believed that everyone ought to have access to quality, affordable health care. That shouldn't be a partisan issue. And uh, thanks to Democrats during Medicare and Medicaid and uh, the Affordable Care Act, we've gotten quite a ways up the mountaintop. And Joe Biden's formula for getting us there is to have a public option. Uh, To take on the pharmaceutical industry. That's what our platform's about. We understand that climate change is real. I'm sitting here in the slop of Washington, D.C., uh, you know, and uh, across this country, uh, climate change is rearing its uh, dangerous uh, ramifications in so many ways. And so our platform tackles that. Our, Our platform tackles opportunity in so many different ways. I'm proud of it, it's a bold platform. I know that Republicans will try to attack it. And you know one of the oldest tricks in the book, you know, as you know, Congressman, is uh, socialism. You know, when Social Security was introduced in the 30s, Re- Republican opponents said it was socialism. When Medicare was introduced in the 60s, a guy named Ronald Reagan said, and I quote, Medicare will lead to socialized medicine. Medicare will lead to socialism in America. And so we know what the attacks are, but what the American people want is results. And they want a president who's going to allow them to keep their health care if they have a pre-existing condition, a president who understands science, and a president who's going to fight for good jobs and fight for everyday Minnesotans and everyday Americans. And that's what our platform is about. I understand those attacks. They will undoubtedly come. But uh, as my uncle used to say, I don't think that dog will hunt.
0: Well, and it seems like the, uh, the Biden coalition is going to be on display the first night of the convention with a former Republican governor uh, and former Republican candidate for president speaking, as well as uh, Senator Bernie Sanders. And, and uh, so it seems like a, a, a quite a tent that in coalition that the, uh, the vice president's putting together. Can you talk a little bit about uh, uh, the way that you're laying out the various nights of the convention and, and starting off in kind of this bipartisan way it was an interesting first choice?
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, I worked for said, uh, Senator Ted Kennedy in the Senate in the 90s. And uh, he taught me the following, uh, Justin and, and Congressman, which is in politics, you got to remember arithmetic. Addition beats subtraction every day of the week. Democrats are practicing the politics of addition. Uh, and you've seen it in 2017, 2018, and 2019. Many of those congressional seats you referenced, Justin, those are R plus districts. Uh, we were winning in districts that were gerrymandered to favor Republicans, and we won them nonetheless. And Joe Biden is a unifier, and you're going to see that on display at the convention. You mentioned, um, you know, we have Republican speakers uh, the first night. That's not the only night we're going to have uh, speakers who are Republicans, and and they're not simply. Um, uh, people who are the recognizable names, you'll undeniably see those. But you're going to hear from ordinary Americans who un- they they took a flyer on Donald Trump. They believed him when he said there would never be a plant closure. They believed him when he said I will never touch your Social Security. They believed him when he said I will protect your health care. And those all turned out to be lies. You know the attacks on the Affordable Health Care, uh, the Affordable Care Act. You know. Now, yeah, we, we, the manufacturing recession predated um, this pandemic. And so we're going to hear from everyday Americans who um, took Donald Trump at his word and now understand that they can't trust him. And you're going to see that trust for Joe Biden. You're going to see also, I think, a lot of um, uh, discussion about what we sorely need in this country. Which is leadership that unites us, leadership that is competent, leadership that listens. My, my mother taught me, Tom, you've got two ears and one mouth for a reason. Be a good listener. And uh, Joe Biden gets that. Donald Trump doesn't. And that's what we need. And 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 you're gonna. I think by the end of the week, and this gets to the to Congressman Weber's um, you know question about um, uh, platform. By the end of the week, you will see our values in action. We will discuss the climate crisis. We will discuss the economic crisis. We will discuss the pandemic. We will discuss the fact that dreamers are every bit as part of the the American fabric as my uh, three U.S.-born children. Those are the things we will discuss, and we will discuss how to form that more perfect union, and I think it starts with Joe Biden and his remarkable vision. And I can't wait to hear from our uh, vice presidential nominee. Uh, that will be historic. And that's going to, I think people will uh, be really, really excited by that. That's what we're going
3: to do. Before we get to the, that, uh, that's an effective presentation, Mr. Chairman. I'm sure we'll discuss all those things, but I've got to ask you. We've got, we're in our 74th night of riots in Portland. Uh, Lake Street was burned down in our town of Minneapolis. Chicago's in the news today for an unprecedented looting of major department stores there. Are you going to talk about the violence in all these cities which are controlled top to bottom by the Democratic Party?
2: Well, we're going to talk about uh, everything going on in this country. And we're going to talk about the, the need for uh, criminal justice reform. You know, uh, Congressman, I, I spent a good portion of my career uh, prosecuting police misconduct and racial violence cases. And full disclosure, I began my career as a career prosecutor at the Justice Department, um, and Dick Thornburg was the Attorney General, George Herbert Walker Bush was the President. I'm proud to have served under Republican and Democratic administrations. Good people. And uh, you know, the the thing I learned from doing police work is that the most important uh, attribute um, or asset that a police officer has is the trust of the community. What happened in the George Floyd case has made the job of law enforcement that much more difficult for everyone across America. That is a fact. I talked to police officers who have said he has made my job harder, period, hard stop. And what is unfortunate about the response of this administration is sending, um, un, uh, sending people into Portland without uh, their identification, uh, camouflage in unmarked vehicles, that's not who we are as a nation. That's that is that's banana republic stuff. And then having the Department of Homeland Security um, actually taking names and, and running uh, surveillance now on journalists. This president um, has the wrong approach. I did a lot of police work. And what I learned is it's not, this president asks the wrong question. Are you with the police or are you against the police? That's what he asks rather than how do we build bridges? How do we make sure that the police have the tools to do their jobs and that they respect the rule of law? There's this notion that you either control crime or you defend and protect the constitution. That is a false choice. It's a false choice that this president is trying to propagate across this country. And frankly, just like he did in Charlottesville, he has thrown gasoline on the fire in the aftermath of George Floyd, in the aftermath of Portland, we do not condone um, people who engage in uh, violent protest. The overwhelming number of people out across America who are protesting were peaceful protesters. And what happened across from the White House with the president uh, walking over uh, to a remarkable church and misusing the Bible was an affront to me as a person of faith. And I think it was an affront to all Americans. And so I think your question is an important question. And and the question and the answer for me is, does this president solve the problem or fan the flames of the problem with both his rhetoric and his actions? And I think sending out people, federal officers, unmarked, you you don't know who they are, um, that is a really dangerous affront to our guardrails. And again, I speak as someone who worked under Republican and Democratic administrations, and it saddens me. It profoundly saddens and maddens me that we don't currently have an attorney general who understands that his job is to be the people's lawyer, not the president's lawyer. It it saddens me to no end. And I think it saddens people across an ideological spectrum. Uh, And that's why things like the Lincoln Project and others um, are so active in this campaign, because they know it's it's about healthcare, but it's about so much more than healthcare. It's about who we are as a nation. It's about the well, rule of law.
0: It's about decency and leadership. And I think that's what uh, the polling and focus groups and what we've been hearing from people and what they wanna see in, in their next president. Um, one, one more question on on the convention before we talked about some of the uh, election uh, and campaigning that's that's going forward you know it's it sounds like uh both parties are 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 playing with new ways and reimagining these conventions and are going to take advantage of the of, of television and 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 probably have some uh some well packaged uh video and and have speakers from around the country uh, which is a far cry from from the way that conventions have always been done where they're kind of the Super Bowl for activists and and politicians where we get together and go to caucus breakfast and delegate breakfast and and, uh, and and see each other in people in person, is is uh, the twenty twenty conventions the future for for Democratic and Republican conventions four years from now and beyond? Well, we sure hope we're not
2: going to be in a pandemic uh, any <laughs> any longer than uh, uh, the end of this year. And we're gonna, and when we elect Joe Biden, we're going to put an end to this pandemic. Uh, you know, the reality is the following: ninety nine point nine percent of the American people who watch a uh, uh, a convention, uh, do so on television. Uh, you know, we, you, the Congressman Weber and and you and I were among what I call the serial activists. You know, the political junkies. Uh, <laughs> you know, people who are um, you know just uh, addicted to this uh, these uh, politics, and, and it's, uh, it's a wonderful thing. And, uh, and, and the vast majority of the American people watching on television. And again, I wanna reiterate something I said before, Justin, which is we saw this coming a while ago or, and we were hoping it wouldn't come to this, but uh, in, in every element of leadership, I've always been taught you hope for the best and you plan for every eventuality. And what I'm excited about with next week, I, I said to the team more than once, the only limitation to a remarkably successful exhilarating inspiring convention is our imagination. And I think you're going to see uh, we are going to be doing those meetings that you referenced Justin, but we're going to do them virtually, uh, undeniably different than in the past. Uh, we're going to be doing a lot of things, but we're going to be doing it across America as well. And, and so this gives an opportunity for people to weigh in. And you'll see, um, especially when, I, you know, when we do things like our roll call, you're going to see some really fun things. And I I think people are going to come away from this excited. You're going to see people you know well. You're going to meet people you've never met before and they inspire you. And I think you're going to come away understanding that Joe Biden truly is the person for the moment.
3: A lot of businesses, Mr. Chairman, are, are kind of looking at their experience in the pandemic and sort of coming to the to the conclusion that maybe these big office buildings and office settings are not necessary, that they can do di- business differently, and certainly not everybody. Do you think that that's possible with conventions, that we will conclude after this is all over, regardless of who wins or loses, that the conventions of the past are, are dinosaurs, and that the kind of convention that you're going to run, and we'll see what the Republicans do, is, is going to be the convention of the future, and we're not going to go back to the kinds of things that we did in the past, regardless of the public health, question?
2: Well, I, I certainly wouldn't want to be in the commercial real estate business in response to your question, because uh, I think a lot of businesses are rethinking uh, their business model. And I know we at the DNC, uh, our workforce is uh, working their tails off and they're all remote. So I know we can do the work uh, without being in the office. So that's an interesting question. You know, I, I think there's still a remarkable um, importance, Uh, to coming together at a city, uh, around a city, uh, to highlight a city. Uh, You know, what saddens me about uh, next week is I was really, really looking forward to highlighting the great city of Milwaukee, and we're going to do it. We're going to do it as best we can, and there are ways to do that. Milwaukee is a gritty city. It's a resilient city. It's a diverse city, Uh, and Wisconsin is the same, and we're really looking forward to doing our level best, and it will be different. There's no doubt about it. It will be different, and I I can see in the future, um, perhaps uh, having conventions in a, anchored in a city, but you know having one or two things perhaps uh, taking place somewhere else. But I think they'll continue to be anchored, and uh, and I think there's a lot of value in that uh, because I we've done a lot of work virtually, and it's going to be a great uh, convention next week. Um, at the same time you know, there there is often no substitute for that interaction uh, that you get and, and the learning that you do. So, well, you know, I'm a big believer. You plan, you execute, you reflect, you learn, and you continue to get better. And after this convention is over and after this cycle is over, we'll reflect on um, what the best way moving forward is. And we always have to remind ourselves that a convention is not a party. It's, it is a, a opportunity, a very serious opportunity at the moment to highlight our values, to mobilize our troops, and to hit the ground running, heading into the most important election cycle uh, of my life. And I think one of the most important in American history.
0: Well, uh, not just uh, uh, conventions will be different this year, but campaigning is different this year. And, and you'll get through next week, uh, uh, coming out with a, with a great convention, I'm sure. Uh, and then we we'll have to get back to campa- campaigning. Um, you know, traditionally, as we head into the home stretch, would be uh, folks would be out door knocking and 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 on the phones and and meeting at events and rallies uh, across the country, and we just can't do that in most places now. Uh, how has the nature of campaigning changed in 2020, and what's the DNC and the Biden campaign doing to reach voters uh, where sure. they're at?
2: Well, we've changed our tactics, without a doubt, but we have not changed our goals. Our goals are to make sure that we are touching voters, we're talking to voters, we're persuading voters, we're earning their votes. And we saw this coming. Um, and so we've been able to uh, pivot uh, with you know, a, a, a real seamlessness about it. I mean, we always have known that digital organizing is a critically important part of success. And that's why over the course of my tenure, for instance, uh, we've purchased over 140 million cell phone numbers. Why is that relevant? Well, you got to meet the voter where they consume their news, and for many voters in America, you know this gadget is how they consume their news. And uh, what we've done now is, rather than knock on doors, again, we're we're buying up social media handles, we're buying up you know text message numbers. We 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 were successful in Wisconsin. Just to give you a very concrete example, the April primary in Wisconsin, and you're well familiar with it, uh, Justin. Um, was not only a presidential primary, there was a really, really important state Supreme Court race there in Wisconsin. And the Republicans uh, refused to move the election. Uh, They tried to weaponize the pandemic. They wanted to shrink turnout because they thought that would help them win a critical Supreme Court election. Well, that strategy failed miserably, and here's why. Uh, Number one, we went to court. We got um, a judge to agree that absentee votes that were postmarked by election day and received within a week would count. That enabled over 90,000 voters to be enfranchised who would have otherwise been disenfranchised. And here's what else we did. Equally important, we out-organized them. We ran a really aggressive digital program. And in 2019, we had been working with the state party in, in uh, Wisconsin, and we had knocked down almost 300,000 doors. So we had built relationships with voters because we've been door knocking there since 2017. We're not gonna repeat the mistakes of uh, past years, we've become an every year, everywhere party. And by building those relationships, when the pandemic hit, we ran a really aggressive digital program to uh, teach people the requirements of absentee voting. And there was something like a ten or twelve fold increase in absentee voting. That's how we won. We out hustled them. What we're doing now in all the critical battlegrounds is we've got um, we we have a really incredibly talented, diverse. Um, a, a coordinated campaign in all the battlegrounds, including but not limited to Minnesota, and uh, the those folks are you know engaged in all the digital organizing that I referred to, and and that's how you connect with voters. I, I personally, I was reading about you know some uh, Trump campaign workers who were knocking on doors, and I was thinking to myself, you know a stranger wearing a mask knocking on my door right now, I'd, I'd open the window and say, thanks, but no thanks, buddy. Uh, because I don't know who you are, and I don't know what you have. Uh, that's, that's, a ni- that's neither a safe nor an effective uh, engagement strategy. And we pivoted a long time ago um, to the digital work, and I think it's paying dividends.
3: We'll see. Uh, We're going to go to questions, I think, in a minute. Justin's in charge of that decision. But I do have to ask that you brought up primaries, Mr. Chairman. I just have to ask you about one, because we have our primary in Minnesota uh, tomorrow, Tuesday of this week. And the hottest primary in the state is in the 5th Congressional District, Minneapolis and its suburbs. Uh, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar is being challenged by Anton Melton-Mukes. And it's a very serious and hot primary number of former state and local DFL Democratic Party chairs have endorsed Ilhan Omar's challenger. Is the DNC solidly in Ilhan Omar's corner in that primary?
2: We have not endorsed in that primary. And as a practice, we don't endorse in Democratic primaries. That's our general practice. And uh, we will, uh, whoever is the winner is the person that we will be um, helping in November.
3: So the DNC does not support the incumbent Democratic congressperson?
2: the DNC is, it has a practice when there is a contested primary of not endorsing in that primary.
0: Thank you. We've got a, a couple of questions here about the general election in Minnesota. Uh, um, we've got a, a US Senate race with Tina, Senator Tina Smith. Uh, we've got a couple of congr- uh, competitive congressional races and uh, both chambers of the state legislature up, uh, the House and the Senate. I think we may be one of, or uh, the only state in the, in the country that's got a divided legislature. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the work that the DNC is doing down ballot uh, and, and the I'm, importance of that work and, and it. how it's going to play out here in Minnesota?
2: Well, I love the question because uh, the first thing we did when I got to the DNC was to change our mission. You know, our mission had kind of devolved into uh, electing the president every fourth year or re-electing. And uh, frankly, we didn't do a very good job of that in 2016. Our mission, uh, the day I got there, we recommitted to electing Democrats up and down the ticket from the school board to the Oval Office. And we do that by building strong parties, building strong partnerships, and fielding great candidates and organizing um, everywhere every year. And, uh, you know, when you talk about down-ballot, Justin, uh, we have, uh, as a result of the partnerships and investments we've made, you look at the, the last um, three years, we've flipped 10 chambers from red to blue. We've seen over 400 um, uh, state legislative seats change. Uh, if we flip 31 seats in eight chambers, we flip those chambers. If we flip 49, in uh, 10 chambers, we flip those chambers. One of the eight I mentioned is the Minnesota Senate. We uh, get two seats there, we flip the Senate, very focused on that. And what that means for our organizing in a state like Minnesota is, is we, we are very um, strategic about how we place organizers. We, I call them nested investments. If you have an organizer in a location where you can, um, like, you know, look at uh, Tim Wall's old seat. I think we can take that seat in November. And so we want to make sure that we have organizers on the ground who can help Joe Biden win, who can help Tina Smith win, who can help um, uh, return that seat to uh, the Democratic fold. And if there's a state senate seat there, that's one of the targets, and and I know in talking to Ken Martin your your esteemed party chair, I know that there are multiple targets for these two races, and so we're very intentional about uh, making sure that we we understand these nested investments so that we can uh, help uh, lift the ticket uh, across the ballot and I think that's incredibly important and and that drives our our work just. <laughs> not only in Minnesota, but across the country. I mean, the state that has the most opportunities across the board this year is North Carolina. You know, we can win. We've got Biden at the top of the ticket. We have an opportunity with Cal Cunningham to to flip the Senate seat. We have an opportunity because of redistricting at the congressional level to flip three or four um, house seats. Uh, We have an opportunity to flip the state Senate there and and, uh, even an outside chance to flip the state house. And if we flip the Senate alone, We'll get Medicaid expansion, which is absolutely critical. These are the things that are on our mind all the time. And uh, when we are uh, coming into states like uh, Minnesota and elsewhere, uh, we're very, very mindful of how we do the organizing there. and And I think it's been really helpful. It's been a great partnership.
3: I, I have to just say, you know, you got we got competitive races in Minnesota. I don't think you're going to flip southern Minnesota district. I think the Republicans will flip the seventh district on Colin Peterson, a guy who's been there a long time, in the most pro-Trump district in, held by a Democrat anywhere in the country. And I also don't think you're going to flip back the eighth district held by Jerry Stauber, which was for so or, or Stauber, which was for so long a, a, a Democratic district.
2: Well, I mean, uh, we'll find out in 85 days. And, uh, you know, so in politics- Pete Stauber,
3: I meant to say. My apologies. I, I have a friend named Jerry Stauber, Pete Stauber.
2: Uh, You know, in politics, I think sometimes a person gets a brand, and that brand is a really good brand. Colin Peterson has a brand in his district. He has the respect of voters. When they look at Colin Peterson, they see a person who's got their back. Uh, They see a person they can trust. And that is why I feel really good this year about our chances, not only there, but in Southern Minnesota. And you know, the reality is, I think Joe Biden is going to do well in Minnesota. And uh, and that's because people want a leader they can trust. Trust is something that is, I hear all the time. Uh, th- this president told me there'd never be a plant closure, and there, you know we have a manufacturing recession. He said he wouldn't touch my health care. I've got diabetes. And he's trying to do away with health care. In the middle of a pandemic, uh, in the aftermath of George Floyd, this president was throwing gasoline on the fire. I think there's a lot of opportunity in Minnesota but I also understand that it's a battleground. I understand Hillary Clinton won by a point and a half. I understand that roughly 5% of the voters voted for Gary Johnson or um, Jill Stein. So we have work to do. Uh, again, we are, we, we are ahead in polls, but we take nothing for granted. And we know we've got to earn everybody's vote. And we know that uh, the Trump folks are out there organizing as well. So uh, and, you know, Ken Martin is doing a, a bang up job We've, when you have Tina Smith, um, she is a remarkable person, uh, and I think her, her um, resonance, just like Amy, you know, they both can win anywhere in the state because of who they are and their values and what they're fighting for, and that is remarkable, and that's and they, that, I think, has some real, um, you know, catalytic uh, bounce for other candidates, so we'll see, and uh you know, perhaps next time you're in D.C. after the new year, we'll uh, whoever, whoever was right can uh, have the other <laughs> one buy coffee. That's
3: well, fair. I,
0: I will say it seems like every two years, Republicans are telling us about how they're going to take Colin Peterson down in the 7th Congressional District. And every two years, come election night, Colin wins again and goes on and, and continues doing his work as the chair of the aid Committee, which, of course, is incredibly important for our state. And uh, and, uh, and I think Dan Fian down in the 1st is going to be a person that joins him. Um, uh, joins him this year, so we'll 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 see. Um,
3: uh, Colin, Colin does have the best opponent he's ever had this time in Michelle Fishbach, former president of the Minnesota State Senate, former lieutenant governor, and most important of all, a former intern in Congressman Weber's office.
0: <laughs> well, those are credentials that no one can that not many can uh, can can have. So there's no doubt, um, uh, Mr. Uh, Chairman. So um, you know, in addition to campaigning and conventions being different. Voting is gonna be different for lots of Americans this year. Um, the numbers of people requesting <laughs> vote-by-mail applications are through the roof. Um, uh, and we see the president uh, saying that mail-in balloting is dangerous for our country um, uh, because of cheating, uh, uh, making accusations that, that there's widespread fraud with vote-by-mail, despite the fact that he uh, voted absentee, uh, vote-by-mail himself from Florida. Uh, and, and so a number of people have asked us about what the DNC's plans are to protect voters' rights and make sure that that the president doesn't, uh, or, or the administration doesn't play with the post office or or try to uh, discredit, uh, you know, the people's rights to vote by mail.
2: That's a great question. And it's, it's, I would say the most frequently asked question I get right now, Justin, because of the president's um, Unfounded and unrelenting attacks on the integrity of vote by mail, you know uh, the there's a I think there's a fundamental difference uh, between the party of Trump and the Democratic Party on the issue of voting. Democrats believe that we should have a pitched battle in the marketplace of ideas on whatever the issue is, and then at the end of the day. We should make it as easy as possible for eligible people to vote. I want to increase turnout. I want to get to as close to 100% as possible. I think our democracy works best when we do that. Republicans, and and let me, um, and again, I don't want to paint with an unduly broad brush, okay? but the Republican Party of Trump and many of the forefathers and I want to, um, if I could take the liberty, I have a 42-second video that I want to play from a guy named Paul Weyrich. Paul Weyrich is a founder of the modern conservative movement. And Paul Weirich understood or, or believed, and he espoused what the philosophy is of Donald Trump and other Republicans.
3: Paul weirich has been dead for several years, Mr. Chairman.
2: No, I know he has been dead, but his philosophy lives on because this is what he says. Oh, wait, wait, let me, this is a 40 second video and he has been dead since 19, for a while. the elections quite goes up as the voting populace goes down. Now, Justin, I uh, spent a big part of my life at the Justice Department uh, enforcing voting rights laws. In Texas, for instance, they had passed a law. Your concealed carry permit was a permissible form of ID, but your University of Texas ID or your Prairie View a and ID was not a permissible form of ID. I sued a number of states involving voter purges uh, because they were trying to purge unlawfully, usually voters of color. Why? Because as Paul Weyrich said, they don't want everyone to vote. And I find that to be profoundly sad. And what we've seen in vote by mail, and we know the evidence, you can look across the country in places like Washington, Oregon, Florida, Arizona, California, vote by mail, it's safe, it's effective, and it increases turnout. And that's why, that's why Trump uses it. His entire cabinet uses it. If Ronna uh, McDaniel comes on uh, this uh, show, ask her how she voted. She votes by mail. Good for her. I'm glad she does it because it's safe and it's easy. But they don't want everyone to vote. And that's why we have spent a lot of time investing in our voter protection infrastructure because uh, we we understand that they're trying to demonize vote-by-mail. We, we want a lawsuit in Wisconsin, um, and now we're litigating whether we can have the same remedy in November. One of our witnesses in the trial that took place last week is the former Deputy Postmaster General uh, who left after the new guy came in. Uh, and the picture that he painted of what's happening in the post office is really, really concerning. And it should be of concern to people across the political spectrum. Because you know what, if you don't allow overtime, and you have these requirements that a ballot has to arrive by election day, and you can request an absentee ballot five days before election day, you are setting up hundreds of thousands of voters for failure. And that is why we are, we are investing in organizing. We are investing in litigation. We are um, continuing to work with Speaker Pelosi. The HEROES Act has $3.6 mil- billion in it to expand vote by mail. Senator Klobuchar has been a lead sponsor of legislation in the Senate. She's working her tail off to make sure that finds its way into the um, final stimulus package. This stuff is existential. And and again, as someone who's spent a lot of my life in this, this notion that vote by mail leads to fraud, that statement itself is fraudulent. And people like Colin Powell and other respected party of Lincoln Republicans have so acknowledged. And by the way, Mike DeWine and Republican governors as well. This is um, really dangerous. This is an attack on our democracy. And, and uh, if you see me getting a little... Um, passionate about this, it's because I think the right to vote is sacred. And I keep thinking about John Lewis, um, because he gave us our marching orders. And he said that the, you know, the 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 right to vote, voting is the most uh, impactful nonviolent act that we can uh, put in place to build a more perfect union. And, um, and what they're doing to that right to vote is really, really, uh, shameful, but we're not gonna. We're we're gonna keep we're gonna keep plugging away, and I'm confident that we will ensure that people can vote however they want to vote in November. We're gonna give them options. That's the key. If you want to vote in person, you should be able to vote in person. If you want to vote early, you should have an ample number of early voting days because that's consistent with social distancing imperatives. And if you want to vote by mail, you ought to be able to vote by mail. And I'm glad that Minnesota now allows for an absentee ballot as long as it's postmarked by election day uh, to count. And, and getting rid of the witness requirement was really important because if you're a shut-in and you're living alone in COVID, that's an onerous requirement and it's unnecessary.
3: I, I, Mr. Chairman, believe it or not, I pretty much agree with you on mail-in voting. I voted by mail in tomorrow's primary about a week ago. Didn't have to have a witness. We've had a lot of in initiatives in Minnesota, same day registration was, you know, we pioneered that. And, I, and I, I, you know, I chaired the National Endowment for Democracy for eight years. I think there's a lot of different forms of democracy, and they, you need to work to make them work, but they can be made to work. But let me put it differently to you. I don't like the Republicans raising this issue of fraud every time they talk about it. But I also don't like the the Democrats raising the issue of voter suppression every time they talk about it. Aren't we setting ourselves up between the the Republican argument about fraud and the Democrats argument about voter suppression? Aren't we setting up an election in which whoever loses says it was rigged. It's not fair. It wasn't true.
2: Well, I mean, the the challenge, Congressman, is um, like, for instance, uh, in 2012 in Pennsylvania, they passed a really onerous voter ID law and um, the Republican speaker of the, I forgot it was the House or Senate, in a moment of candor that he probably regretted saying is, the purpose of this is to help elect Mick Romney by making it harder for, uh, you know, black people to vote. It, there was no subtlety to that. And I've, I've done so many uh, of these- But black cases.
3: turnout is at record levels. It was in that, in that election and it was in the off-year election. But, 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 and it surpasses now white turnout in many places.
2: Well, but but you know, Congressman, when you have laws, and and again, you know, I I've had the privilege of uh, suing a lot of these states, and when you see the record evidence that emerges, the utter absence of subtlety in what they're trying to do to make it harder for people to vote, um, and and the only justification <laughs> they give is fraud. We, you know, this non-existent uh, uh, fraud. You have a you have a you have a higher probability of being struck by lightning than um, you know, seeing uh, you know, fraudulent voting. That's about the, uh, you know, the standard there. And, and I've just experienced it, and I can give all too many uh, chapter and verse examples of what has happened, and it, it's just not a coincidence. You know, in, in, in Texas, just to go back to Texas, in 2018, 800,000 more Latinos voted than in 2014. That's really impressive. 3.5 million Latinos were eligible to vote and didn't in 2018. Now, I'm not suggesting that they didn't vote um, because of voter suppression, but what I am saying is these onerous laws that have been put in place, Texas Republicans understand that they are swimming upstream against um, remarkable demographic wins uh, that I think I just mixed the metaphor there, so I apologize.
3: We we, we get it. Um,
2: but, uh, you know, and so their last gasp is to make it harder for people to vote. So I come back to Paul Weyrich from 1980. There is a certain timelessness about what he said. I don't want more people to vote. And by the way, the person who said that in 2020 was Donald Trump. If you have all these people voting by mail, I'm not going to do well. Well, actually, the empirical study suggests that um, that's not necessarily the case. That's right. The 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 candidate that does the better job of making the case and then turning out the vote is the candidate who wins. But Donald Trump understands that um, he's not that candidate this year because he's violating Ted Kennedy's rules of arithmetic. He's practicing the politics of subtraction.
0: Um. The uh, pundit class, reporters, and uh, political watchers alike not only are, are looking forward to the conventions this, uh, coming up next week, but probably the biggest news story for the last you know, three and a half months is who the uh, vice president is going to choose as his running mate. Um, uh, you want to share with the folks at the Humphrey School your inside information here and break the news uh, uh, with, our, with our group? Who's
3: it going to be?
2: I think it's going to be a woman.
0: <laughs>
2: there it is.
3: <laughs> you heard it. You heard it here, but not first. <laughs> yes, exactly.
2: You know, um, I have had. Um, I feel very blessed. You know, uh, Lou Gehrig once said, uh, "You know, I feel like the luckiest uh, man on the face of the earth." Well, I feel that way because, you know, in addition to Ted Kennedy, I've had the privilege of working with almost all of the folks who are under consideration, uh, and. Uh, they're just—it's a deep bench. You know, people are wondering why is this taking so long, because it's a deep bench. And uh, and you know, as someone who was uh, once vetted for that job, uh, they do a really, really, really thorough vetting when it comes uh, to uh, this. And by the way, they should do a really, really thorough vetting because you want to know everything about that potential candidate. Um, but what's clear to me is obviously we're going to be history-making and. This is a candidate who's going to share the values of Joe Biden, and this is a candidate who I think is going to add tremendous value uh, to uh, the ticket, uh, whoever she
3: is. Let me ask you a tough question on that. I'll try to ask it as delicately as I can. First of all, I, I know Karen Bass a bit from the National Endowment for Democracy Board. I think very highly of her. I know Susan Rice a bit, think highly of her. I don't know some of the others. But it bothers me just a little that we have allowed identity politics to dominate this choice is, and I, it, it, it's a tough question. I understand the equities involved, but isn't there a little bit of a danger in deciding we're going to be choosing candidates based on gender, race, ethnicity. Um, isn't there the danger of pushing qualifications other than that to the side?
2: Well, I think uh, we have a tremendous uh, quality of candidates that are under consideration for vice president. And uh, somebody, I said to someone the other day, uh, it's not, it, when people say it's, uh, this is the right time uh, to do this, you know, my answer, quite frankly, is I don't know that I agree with that. We should have done it years ago. Uh, in a nation where we have so many remarkably accomplished uh, women, uh, in, women in politics, women in business, uh, we, have to, we have to continue this process of shattering glass ceilings. And uh, I, I think what Joe Biden is doing is he's, he's picking among tremendously qualified people at a moment in time where um, our nation uh, wants leadership that will make bold decisions that will move America forward. When I hear people say, and I hear this once in a while, oh, Joe Biden, I like him, but you know, I don't know if he's bold. I think what he did on March 15th in the last presidential debate when he said, I'm going to put a woman on the ticket, because there are so many great women uh, who could be president and uh, should be president, and so I'm going to put a woman on the ticket. I thought that was um, I thought that was absolutely the right thing to do, and I applaud him for it. And I think what people are going to see, and you mentioned the 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 members, the people that you know. I mean, what I would I would expand on that, Congressman, to say um, the others are equally well qualified. And and I let me be clear, I I
3: don't, I'm not disputing that, Mr. Chairman. I'm just saying I I don't personally know that.
2: Yeah, no, I just I, I agree with that.
0: Uh, final, final question here, Mr. Chairman, uh, come Thursday night uh, with uh, when Vice President uh, Biden and, and Dr. Biden are on the stage with, with his running mate and, and her family and, and uh, the lights go down and the convention's over, you know, how, do you, uh, uh, how do you qualify or uh, quantify rather a successful convention for you, the DNC, and, and for the vice president?
2: All that uh, the American people know that much more about Joe Biden. Joe Biden's been around for a long time. But a lot of people are still getting to know Joe Biden. So those who are still getting to know him, know him better. And they'll see, because I've seen it, they'll see a a, a person, uh, family and faith. Uh, That's what Joe Biden's all about. Uh, They'll see a person of uh, integrity. They'll see a person of accomplishment. They'll see a person they can trust. That's what it comes down to. Who can I trust? to make my life better? Who can I trust? We're in a crisis. We're in three of them. Who can I trust to get us out of these crises? And and what they'll also see, um, and, and they'll be meeting for the first time, uh, a, a woman who will be in the process, I hope and I believe, of making history. And I think that excitement alone uh, is going to give us uh, a ton of additional momentum coming out of this. And, and again, because we have been planning for every contingency, while it will be different, I think it will be no less exciting uh, come next week. And I'm really, I'm really excited to present our values, our platform, our vision, and our standard bearers uh, to the American people. And uh, again, I want as many people, I want 100% participation. I wish we could uh, come to agreement with the RNC that we want to make it as easy as possible for everyone to vote, Um, and let's have that battle in the marketplace of ideas. I think when we have that battle, we win, and I hope people will see that next week.
0: Well, thank you so very much for joining us today and for sharing uh, your vision for the Democratic Party and the country, and we we sure appreciate it and enjoyed the conversation.
2: It's an honor to be with you. Congressman, thank you so much.
0: Mr.
3: Chairman, thank you for joining us.
2: It's a a pleasure to be with you. Pleasure to be with all of your viewers.
0: Good luck next week. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.